into it tonight. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Something interesting is about to happen. Uh, we have been studying, I think we're all the way up to about lesson 19 tonight, and we have been studying about the kingdom of God. I hope to get done with it. It's a long lesson. We may do two parts, but uh, it is something shifts because we go all the way back to the beginning of what we've been learning about the government of God from Adam and Eve in the garden and that God's intent was that he was going to introduce to them that the way life is going to be done is it's not going to be done with rules. It's going to be done with relationship. And so if we go back to the garden of Eden, when God says, do not touch this tree, do not eat it, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat it. He said, the day you eat it, you die. And the, the reality of what, if we're not careful, we come to is that we act like that that was the first rule God ever gave. But it was not a rule because rules come to uh, delineate between good and evil. And what God teaches us is that the tree was the delineation of both good and evil and it was kept in the realm of God. It was not to be known by humans, it was only to be known by God. God would be the judge and God would be the foundation of what would define good and evil. So he said, stay away from it. So the first command given, we cannot look at it as a rule. We have to look at the first command given was the wisdom of God. So the way God intends to do his government is not with rules. God always intended to do his government with his wisdom. And his wisdom was not a rule. His wisdom was his knowledge and his ways and his intent and his will. And that that would move me into a relationship with him so that I would learn to live by his wisdom. We've kind of looked at that in some of the lessons past that the real battle is between human wisdom and God wisdom. That's where the real fight becomes and, and you know, the battle of the mind to trust the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of human logic and reason versus the wisdom of God, which requires faith. So it wasn't really a rule, don't eat of this tree or you die. It was God's introduction of wisdom. However, you know the story, they do rebel. And they're kind of like, nah, we want to do our own wisdom. We want to be like you. We want to know good and evil and be like God. That was the deception. They ate the fruit. So what happens out of that? The rules begin to ensue. And the rules begin to come fairly quickly. By the time we get to Moses, God gives 10 rules. We call them the 10 commandments. Come on, you know how it happened. The 10 rules, they broke the very first one before they ever even got started. Before the first one ever even came off the mountain, written in stone by the finger of God, they had already broken it. But because we're so arrogant at humans, by the time Jesus Christ shows up as God's government in the flesh, God himself, to show us how the wisdom of God would be played out on earth through a human, uh, the Jews had already amassed some 670 more rules. It made them feel good. It made them feel spiritual. It made them feel righteous. It made them feel closer to God. The more rules you could keep, the closer you were to God. Come on, somebody. That kind of sounds like where we are today. The more rules you keep, the more holy you are. But that was never God's intent for his kingdom government. His kingdom government was not about rules. His kingdom government has been about his wisdom and your relationship to his wisdom. 
wisdom. And that is going to be the introduction tonight. God is about to flip the script. God is about to take a group of people from amassing rules, what you can do and what you can't do. So deeply ingrained are those rules that the rule keepers would call Jesus the son of the devil himself. The rule keepers would be the one that would have the hardest time receiving Jesus Christ. They were called the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, those who really kept the rules well. Paul will say of himself this. He said, if you really want to know, he said about someone who could keep the rules, I was blameless. I was above everybody else when it comes time to keep the rules. I'd like to meet some people like that, right? Like he was a rule keeper, but he said, based on the wisdom of God, all of my rules are nothing but dung. They amass me nothing. They're invaluable. They get me nowhere. So we, we find that what happens with Jesus Christ coming to the earth is again, he flips the script. And he's going to take us back to God's wisdom. He doesn't want you living by rules. He wants you living by wisdom. And wisdom is freedom. Rules are bondage. Wisdom is freedom. And yet we sit here in 2023 today, and I would say more Christians and more denominations are filled with rules. Hoops you need to jump through. Ways you need to live. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And truth be known, it's good, right? There are things we should not do, but there are things we should not do with or without God. I don't think you even need God to go, hey, you need to treat your body better. It's given to you. Whether you believe you live eternally or you die and come back as a cow, you need to live good. You need to eat right. You need to, so rules are good for keeping us, you know, healthy and keeping us strong. But Jesus is going to introduce something to us. And he comes as the wisdom of God. Paul will say this in Corinthians about Jesus. He will say he is the power and he is the wisdom of God. And he comes in the flesh and he begins to show us how a human can do the wisdom of God. But yet rule keepers hate that. They try to crucify him and they ultimately end up doing it. And Paul will say this. He said, if you had known that, you would have never crucified him. And then Paul goes on to write in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. He says, you were running a really good race. God wanted you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And he has this phrase, who cut in on you to keep you from obeying? In other words, it is for freedom that Christ made you free. So the goal is freedom. Well, if the goal is freedom, I don't need another rule. Rules make me bound. So then how, how does God get us to live his ways without rules? Because we're rule breakers by nature. We love a rule. I love a good rule because it helps me feel either holy or it helps me feel rebellious. I love the rule. The more rules I keep, the higher up the ladder I go in my spirituality. So what I want to attempt to do tonight in this lesson is to break down the system of religion that introduces itself that it's always been about keeping the rules and that this kingdom government of God is not about rules well, if it's not about rules, then there's no hope for any of us. Come on, right? There's no hope for any of us in this room if, it, if it's about the rules. Because everybody, everybody sitting here, everybody in the room, you're a rule breaker. We, we make our own rules. We break our own rules. We're gifted at it. It's called New Year's resolutions. We, we make them and we break them. And then if we can keep the rules, we feel good about ourselves. We get the tattoos that prove I can keep the rules and... We come to the book of Acts and something very interesting is happening because Jesus is about to introduce to a group of rule keepers. 
He's about to introduce into the mindset of the Jewish religion, which was heavily influenced by rules. In other words, Paul will write this in Romans chapter two. He said, what advantage is there to you being a Jew? And then he says, much in every way, you have the very commands of God. So in the Jewish mindset, whom this is who Jesus will be speaking to, they were very much in tune with, we're better than everybody else. We're, we're a higher echelon of a race of people than everybody else. This is such a deep thought. We'll look at this in the future. It's such a deep thought that God had to whittle out racism among the Jewish mindset just to get them to take the gospel to the world because they were so entrenched with we're better than everybody else. We have the commands of God at our fingertips. God wrote down his laws on a stone and gave it to us and we're rule keepers and, and, and that makes us, everybody else that doesn't keep the rules are infidels and they're dirty and they're no good. And so what we're about to read is Jesus is about 50 days, shortly 50 days after his resurrection. So we're a little over a month post-resurrection when we pick up this story in the book of Acts chapter 1 and listen to what it reads in verse 3. After his suffering, that's Jesus, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proof that he was alive and he appeared to them for over 40 days and he spoke about this. Now look, he didn't speak about denominations. To the best of our knowledge, we don't know if he spoke about the rapture or he spoke about whether you should have praise and worship or take up offerings or how our services should be structured or whether we should have small groups or big groups or children's ministry or youth ministry. What it says is that he spent 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. Now, you know, a man had to write the book of Acts because if a woman had written the book of Acts, we would have had six more chapters of what he said about the kingdom of God. But Luke just writes it and just moves on. And I'm like, Luke, dear Lord, you're kidding me. You didn't, you, you even said that you spent years researching this thing, talking to people. And this is the best you could give us. He spent 40 days talking about the kingdom. Well, this is what that tells me. Whatever he said must have been important because he spent over 40 days. That's a long conference. Come on, we usually can do a one weekend conference and have our nice t-shirts with our, with our theme and we send you home after about two days. Can you imagine 40 days with a post-resurrected Jesus? Man, he is in a body that is immortal. He's glorified and he's sitting down and he's just dumping wisdom. He's dumping wisdom for 40 days of his kingdom. And so here's what we do know. I don't really know what all he was saying, but I know whatever he said must have been some supernatural, uh, overwhelming, powerful thing. It goes on to say this. We keep reading verse four on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. He says, but I want you to wait for the gift that my father has promised that which you have heard me speak to me. For, he says in verse 5, John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized. And then here it comes. This to me is what he spent 40 days. And again, this is an opinion. I have no way to know this, but my, my study leads me to believe it to be true. That the 40 days I believe Jesus spent talking about the kingdom. And I don't know what he talked about. I wish I knew it all. But I, I can say this, that, that whatever he introduced about the kingdom, we find what I believe the true topic is. 
And the true topic is, I believe for 40 days, Jesus flips the script to introduce them to the ways of the Holy Spirit. This, this third, we would say in Christian evangelical thinking, this third person who is God. He introduces them. You know, I mean, we, we get in scripture and we think Holy Spirit, and we get things like a mist, a wind, a bird, a dove, uh, a tongue of fire. I mean, almost everything about the Holy Spirit is so ethereal. Uh, if you put him on a t-shirt, you basically put a bird. And it's like, dear Lord, what would a bird have to do with anything of my life? But Jesus is not introducing some dove. He's not introducing just a bird or a wind. He's introducing a person of the Godhead. And so the the script that Jesus is, is about to flip is that he's going to introduce a new way of God's kingdom government. That it's not about rules, it's about a relationship. And in a relationship with this person called the Holy Spirit, this side of the Godhead, it is going to lead you into the wisdom of God so greatly that you will keep every rule that God would ever want in your life simply because you're in a relationship. If you fast forward from this moment into the book of Galatians, Paul will write this in Galatians 5. He says the fruit of the Holy Spirit and then he lists the fruits out. And then he tells you there's a war between the Spirit and your own flesh, the things you want to do, the things you wish you could do and have a desire to do. He said, you war against what God's warring, what God wants out of you and what God intends out of your life. There's a battle going on. But as you read through it and he says, the fruit of the spirit is, and then he lists these fruits out. He gets to the end of the list and then he says something very beautiful. He says, against these nine fruits, there is no law. And and that is astounding especially to the Jewish mind, although Paul is writing to the Galatians, but in a Jewish religious mindset and to the religious mind, that, that, that is just out of my way of thinking. I can't even think that way. You have to have rules. If you don't have rules, you have chaos. Come on, you know that's true. Leave the kids alone and give them no rules. You have chaos. They did that. Uh, they did a study where they took a bunch of 10, 11, and 12-year-olds and they threw them in a house And they filmed the whole thing. They had hidden cameras. And they left them alone for a weekend. They left food around. Uh, They they left anything they wanted to do. TVs there, Game Boys there. And they put a bunch of boys in the house and they just turned them loose. Didn't give them any rules. Said, enjoy your weekend. The kids destroyed the house. Literally destroyed the house. Paint over the walls, holes in the walls, football inside, food everywhere. Well, it shows, well, maybe it shows boys are chaotic, you know, I don't know. But it does show the truth of the matter. If you don't have rules, you have chaos. But Galatians 5 5 says there are no rules. There's no law against that. Well, Well, that can't be possible. Yes, it is. Because the possibility of no rules is the relationship with the Holy Spirit. In other words, when you're walking with him, when you're in a relationship with him, when you believe that he speaks, when you believe that he talks with you, when you believe that he guides you into all truth, when you believe that he's with you 24-7, when you wake up, he's up. When you're asleep, he's still there with you. When you live that way, there will be zero law. There will be zero thing that comes in the way. There will be zero intent of you not pleasing God when you follow the ways of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus introduces this. Now here's where it becomes interesting and what we're going to really dive into tonight. 
Jesus introduces us not to a rule, but to a person. And this creates a little bit of haphazardness. It, it creates a little bit of tension when, when we talk about humans. And he's introducing the Holy Spirit to humans and he ties it into the restoration of his kingdom. In other words, the way the kingdom of God is really going to come to pass in your life it's not another church on a corner with another rule. It's, it's going to come to pass when God's people begin to walk in line with the Holy Spirit. Now, this creates two things that are interesting. Number one, about the Holy Spirit, he's very subject, uh, subjective as well as objective. First, he's objective, meaning everybody in this room that claims to be born again when we introduce you to the Holy Spirit, he's very objective. In other words, he's working the same thing in every one of us. He is pushing every one of us to the same goal. He says, Jesus, the Spirit will lead you to truth. So one thing we know about the Spirit, he will always lead you to the truth. If you're not being led to the truth, then it's easy to say, well, you're not listening to the Holy Spirit. You can call it the Spirit all you want, but he has to be leading you to the truth, the wisdom of God. And that is the objective side of the Holy Spirit. It's not even up for an opinion. It is what it is. He leads you to the truth. He can never go against the wisdom of God. The Spirit of God can never go against the Word of God. The Spirit of God can never be anti the Son of God. They have to work hand in hand. But there's another side to this is that the Holy Spirit is not only objective, meaning he's working in all of us the same things, but there's a subjective side to the Holy Spirit. And that is that when he touches us, we all respond differently because we're different humans. I, I often say this, that when the Holy Spirit moves on me, I'm a crier. Man, I, I, I don't really run and shout and jump and hoop and holler. I'm a crier. I, I, I respond. But if I think that everybody who's touched by the Spirit has to respond that way, come on, somebody. I'm going to have a bunch of bound up people that think every time they cry, it's the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that is a subjective nature, meaning the spirit touches a human and all humans respond differently. Some fall out in the Holy Spirit, but if I'm not careful, I'll make a rule out of that. Well, when the Holy Spirit touches you, you need to fall out. I remember years ago that we were having an altar call and there were just people lined up everywhere and the evangelist is praying for people. And every person he would touch would fall and fall and fall and fall. And he got to this one young man, laid his hands on him. The kid didn't move. Kid did not budge. And so the evangelist stopped the entire meeting. There was about 500 people in the room. He stopped the entire meeting and said, this little kid right here, he said, he, he's got a hard heart. He's a brick. Now, the moment he said that, how many of you know what the kid's about to do next? Right? Yes. What's about to happen next is he's about to fall flat on his face and to give a courtesy drop. Mm, come on. You know what a courtesy drop is? That's when you fall because it's expected of you. It's not because the, the spirit of God's power touched you. It's because it became a rule. Everybody who falls must be being touched by the Holy Spirit. Or maybe everybody in our church back home in Alabama, when I was growing up, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Gerald. And every time the spirit of God would touch him, you would hear him winding up. And all of a sudden, Gerald would just take off running. And he would run around the sanctuary and everybody would clap and cheer and holler. Well, guess what? If everybody ran, 
We, we, we think that's God. Why? Because we try to objectify the subjective move of the Holy Spirit. We can never do that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is such a genuine thing, a person of the Godhead, the wisdom and the breath of God to us. He knows all of us. He understands how to capture you. And because he captures human beings with different personalities, there's a lot to the Holy Spirit that is subjective. Like if one person falls out, is that the Holy Spirit? Well, all we would say is when they came up, are they any different? Because the way I know it's the Spirit or not, does it produce fruit? And so that's the objective, is that the Spirit of God is always trying to produce fruit. So when Gerald ran around the room, well, is that out of order? Is it chaos? Well, it depends. If Gerald starts running around the room saying this is the Holy Ghost, but it distracts everybody in the room, it takes away and puts all eyes on Gerald instead of God, then we would say that, that Gerald is only subjectively thinking it's the Holy Spirit, and we could say it's the flesh. How would we know? It's the fruit of it. We have to judge the fruit of it. We have to look at the move of the Holy Spirit. And so as Jesus is introducing us to this new uh, way to be in God's government, flowing with this vibrant power, this breath and wisdom of God that will move me to the truth of God, we have to know that there's the objectiveness of it as well as the supernatural side of what God is trying to do. And if I'm not careful, I will, I will, because of the subjectivity, I will get rid of the objectivity. In other words, I don't even want to talk about the Holy Spirit. It scares me. I had a friend of mine that grew up in the Baptist church and he ended up uh, meeting the Holy Spirit. Somebody told him about the Holy Spirit. And I met him after the fact. I met him after the Spirit of God had touched his life and baptized his life and changed his life. And when I met him, I remember him saying very distinctly, this is like 1994. He said, before I was baptized with the Spirit, my Bible was about this thick and he held his fingers up about two inches. My Bible was about this thick. He said, but after I was baptized with the Holy Spirit and then he just spread his hands apart like two feet wide and said, now my Bible is this thick. Come on. It wasn't that his Bible went from 66 books to 200 books. It's that God opened up his heart and his mind and he was seeing truths that he had never seen before. Why? Because it was the spirit that could lead him to those freshness, those fresh revelations. Well, that, that is the reality of the spirit. And yet I asked him, I said, hey, how could you be in church your whole life? You grew up in church and you never heard of the Holy Spirit, never? And he said, nobody ever talked about it. I said, well, you would have to talk about it. How could you read the Bible and not talk about it? And he said, well, every time our pastor would get to that passage, we would either skip over it or just read past it real quickly. And nobody would ever comment or challenge anything about it. It just was what it was. So here's what we can say. Perhaps the subjectivity of the Holy Spirit, meaning people may run, people may fall out, people may cry, people may dance, people may shout, people may pray in tongues, people may, you know, give a glory run, whatever. Because of those subjectivity of human beings, we just objectify the whole thing as demonic. Well, it must be evil. It must be of the devil. So we cannot do that. 
Otherwise, we're going to become a very weak people because Jesus introduces us to the Spirit. And when he introduces us to the Spirit, it is to move upon believers. And if it's to move upon believers, then it will move in such a way that your personality and the way you are will will be influenced by the Holy Spirit. And we all respond differently. Again, I cry. But at the end of my crying, the fruit of my life begins to produce fruit that I've truly been touched by his power. Why? because I begin to please God and I begin to live in a way that's approved by God. So Jesus comes and introduces us to this and says, this is the way that that my kingdom is going to be restored. Listen to this thought. It's an interesting thought. Back to what Jesus was saying. 40 days talking about it. And I wrote this as a thought. Whatever topics that Jesus discussed with his disciples after his resurrection... It does seem safe to conclude that God's intent was to distribute his ability within born-again believers so as to move his kingdom forward. God's intent was to put his ability into human beings, not his rules, his ability, not not just put uh, works of stone. God was going to put himself, his ability. So what I do need to know, however this plays out, I need to know that God's intent was that he would move my life forward to move his kingdom forward, and he wanted to use me, a human being, which again can subjectify the Holy Spirit because it says that, as we said before, that God's intent is to use human beings, and that's scary. And the reason it's scary is because, come on, we human beings can mess a lot up. We can go crazy. We can come up with weird ideas. And you would think, why would God do this? Well, it's not because God trusts you. It's that he trusts himself. It's not that he trusts your ability and personality. He trusts his ability. He trusts the spirit's personality. So all he needs is you to submit to his spirit. God is not going to use you because you're so gifted, talented, and anointing. Wipe that off your plate. This whole thing of I just don't feel anointed. Good, you shouldn't feel anointed. Your only hope is to have his ability and his power. Anytime it's about you, you subjectified it, and you'll mess the whole thing up. I heard somebody say one time, they said, hey, they were leaving the church. You know, they, got, they had gotten mad, and they left the church. And they said, well, I can tell you what, the moment I leave, this place will fall apart. Well, I understood what they were saying. They were very much involved. They, they played a, you know, they played a big role in the church at that time. This place will fall apart when I leave. And, and I'm kind of thinking, well, okay, great. If it falls apart, it's not worth dying for anyway. I want, I want to give my soul to something that's not going to fall apart when a gifted human walks out the door. I was told years ago, this is years back, uh, someone came in my office and said, I need you to do it my way, the way I think. And I said, look, I can't. I need to follow the Lord. He said, well, if you don't, I'm going to take my money. And the assumption was if they take their money, the whole thing falls apart. I get it. I understand you need money to survive. But what God is teaching us, what Jesus is teaching us here in this transitional book called the book of Acts, is that he's teaching us it's not about your ability, it's about his. It's not about your power, it's about his. It's not about your rules, it's about his relationship with you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that is true, if the truth of the matter is that 
God's intent is to distribute his ability to humans. Somebody tell me what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Second, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. By the time we get to the book of Corinthians and Paul is writing to this newly formed church, he says, well, I'm going to come to you, verse 19, very soon if the Lord is willing, and I'll find out not only about these arrogant people and what they're saying, and then listen to this. This is interesting. It's the same word that Jesus used when he said, I'll baptize you with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the same word in the the book of Acts chapter 1 where Jesus said you will receive power. You will receive my ability. You will receive the intent of God to use you as a human. Paul says it this way. He says, I'm about to come and find out about these arrogant people because I want to know what power they have. That's interesting. He uses the same word power that Jesus used for us. But yet he says this. He says, no, this power, this inherent ability is not just an inherent ability that works from the kingdom of God. There's an inherent ability that works from the kingdom of darkness as well. In other words, Lucifer, Satan, uh, what does the revelation call him? That great dragon, the one that rules the realm of darkness. He himself wants to use an inherent power in his children to move his kingdom forward. So this ability uh, of God to move his kingdom forward on the other side of the coin, I won't even say a coin, on the other side of the darkness sits another kingdom who at the same time understands the way we move the kingdom is with an inherent power. We move the kingdom forward through an inherent power. And I love what he says in verse 20. Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And now Paul himself does what Jesus did in the book of Acts. He, he ties the kingdom to this thinking of power and ties the power to the Holy Spirit. This grand shift. And I think a lot of times what we have in Christianity today is we have a lot of people, Paul will say this in the book of Timothy, there's a lot of people who have a form of godliness, but they have no power. Oh, they know the rules, they know the creeds, they know the scriptures, they can quote it, they can say it but they have no power, meaning their lives are not congruent with God's approval, meaning they're not moving the kingdom forward, they're moving their own agendas forward, meaning we may be increasing in number, but we're not increasing in life change. We're not increasing in conversion. We may be increasing in amount of people that are showing up, but the amount of people who are truly converted and changed and different. In other words, the church grows and grows, but we become more carnal the more people who come in the door the more carnality there is. And Paul says, no, that's just a form of godliness. Power is that every person who walks in the door and meets God and and is touched by his spirit, that the carnality dies to the conversion and we begin to live by a new nature. Here's the thought. Seemingly, there's an inherent power that works within the nature of two distinct groups of humans. There's not a lot, you know, I know we talk about all the races, but there's only two distinct groups of humans. There are the children of the devil and the children of God. And it seems so unfair, right? Because we're rule keepers. And if I'm keeping a lot of rules, I must be in God's kingdom. No. If I'm breaking a lot of rules, I must be in the devil's kingdom. No. It's not about rules. It's about the nature. The nature of of one puts you in one kingdom and your nature being new puts you in the other kingdom. 
Uh, it's such a powerful thought that first John three, this is what he says. He said, this is how we'll know who the children of God are. He sums it up for us. I mean, yes, there's a lot of tribes and nations and language and people groups, but you want to sum it up and make it as simplistic as possible. You want to objectify the whole issue in the world. We, we don't subjectify it with, should I vote Republican or Democrat? We objectify it with this. This is how we know who the children of God are. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. And this is how we know who the children of the devil are. So let's just objectify the whole issue in our world today. It's just two groups of people. And the problem to me, the weakness, the challenge, so to speak, is when the children of God are no distinctly different in nature than the children of the devil. There's no fruit difference. Oh, they may keep more rules. They may not smoke, drink, chew, or hang around those that do, but their nature is no different. Their addictions are no different. Their brokenness is no different. Their depression is no different. Their, their, their temple of, the, of their body is no different. And Paul introduces that this is the objective problem. We have two natures of people on planet Earth. We have two kingdoms that are trying to work with an inherent power. And both are working antagonistic to each other. It's such a powerful thing that the book of Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says, For he rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. He rescued us from the kingdom. It doesn't say that he gave me an invitation to come to church. He said that he had to rescue me from a kingdom of darkness and then transfer me into the kingdom of his dear son. Again, it seems like the objective problem facing all of us as humans is not who's governing the world. It's not whether or not we have a good economy, bad economy, or is China trying to get in our back door and hurt us or the banking industry that's collapsing around us or the gas prices and the grocery prices that are soaring. Yes, it affects us all. But the objective issue is that we have two, two groups of people sharing planet Earth. We have the children of the devil and the children of God. And because of that, we have two distinct kingdoms on planet earth working simultaneously, antagonistic to each other with the antithesis of one is trying to keep all the rules and display all the powers, but they have no relationship. Oh, they may do false miracles and powers and deception, but they do not have the relationship. A kingdom versus a kingdom, Paul will write, and you have to be rescued. Here's what the word rescue means, just to show that it's not a simplistic raise your hand and, and chant this chant with me, and then you'll be born again. Hey, you prayed the prayer. Yeah, you might have prayed the prayer, but if your life did not change, if the fruit of your life didn't change, if you didn't come into a relationship with God himself and his spirit, then we would challenge, have you ever been converted? You might have said the right words. You might have chanted the ritual but just chanting the ritual may not have brought you to a place. Are you really converted? And this is what the word rescued mean when, when he says you had to be rescued. It means this. It means to draw to oneself, to rescue or to deliver. In other words, when God said, I rescued from the dark world, I, I rescued you from the addictions and all of the brokenness. It wasn't just to rescue, it was to bring you to myself because I know that if you don't know me, it's going to be hopeless. If you, if you don't know my will, it will be hopeless and it will be hopeless to know my will unless I give you my spirit because according to Corinthians 2, the way you know my thoughts is my spirit. Come on somebody. The way you know my thoughts is my spirit. I will download to you my intent. I will download to you my approval. I will put within you the very laws I will write to 
them on your heart. I will not write them on stone. So when God says, I'm rescuing you, it's not just that he drop kicks you from one kingdom into another and says, good luck. No, he says this. He says, I'm going to draw you to myself. I'm going to draw you close to me. You're going to know my thoughts and your mind is going to be my mind. And your, your intent is going to be my intent. And then he uses this word to deliver. And, and I do believe it means to be delivered like, you know, you're in bondage and change and we come break you free. But it also bears to go back to what Jesus said. You must be born again. That salvation is a deliverance. It's a birthing process. It's taking you out of one nature and it's birthing you into another nature. It's taking you from one nature and it's birthing you into another nature. So the reality of this is, is that there's a war going on for you, an objectified war to keep you, even let you come in the kingdom of God, but I'm going to keep you from bearing fruit. I'm going to get you so frustrated, so guilt-ridden. I'm going to get you to feel like you don't have the ability. I'm going to get you to hate your personality, the way that God created you and how he made you. You're going to despise yourself. You're going to wish you were somebody else. That's, how, that's what I'm going to do to you. I don't mind you coming in and faking it, but you're not going to bear fruit. You're not going to have God's ability. He's not going to use your personality. You're going to always feel ashamed and always feel guilty and always feel like you never measure up. Why? Because I cannot allow you to move God's kingdom forward. But Jesus said, I'll tell you how powerful it is. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Perhaps Jesus was thinking about this delivery. If you've ever seen a woman go through the birthing process, the pain, the struggle, uh, everything working to push this new life out. I will say this about true Christianity. Yes, the, the initial moment of confession is free. The initial moment of faith costs you nothing. But after it, it becomes an all-out war. After it, it's learning to work out that salvation. After it, it is a warfare that's working against you. Here's the thinking. The inherent power, this is my thought, the inherent power of God's Holy Spirit is to work within every believer. So there's the objective work of the Spirit. God's intent is to work his power into every believer so that the nature of your life stands as witness to unbelievers, atheists, agnostics, criticizers that the resurrection life of Jesus is real. I'll read it one more time. The inherent power of God's Holy Spirit is to work within every believer so that the nature of your life will stand as witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the way the agnostic, atheist, and criticizer will know Jesus is by looking at you. Come on. They will look at you and you say, me, my messed up, broken life. Yes, but be careful because the moment you say my messed up, broken life, you're thinking about the old you in the dark kingdom, but you have been transferred and now you need to think differently. It's why Paul will write, you need to put on the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Romans 12, one, two, and three will say this, that you be renewed in the attitude and the spirit of your mind. 
Why? Because the battle is really not the devil once you've been transferred, once you've been rescued. The battle is not the devil. The battle now is that my mind stays back in the dark world. My mind stays in the other kingdom. My mind stays in the realm of logic and reason. I can't understand how could God and why God, rather than coming in going, God, renew my mind. Let me see that it is your ability and not mine. It is your provision and not mine. It is your law, your wisdom and not mine. And when I begin to live that, my life stands as witness to the reality of Jesus Christ. In other words, we would say it this way, though it perhaps could sound arrogant. If you want to know if Jesus is alive and real, then hang out with me. That should be the testimony of every Christian. If we really believe what we say we believe. And what we say we believe is that I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was hopeless, but now I have hope. I once was bound to death, but now I shall receive eternal life. Hang out with me and you'll see. And so somebody hangs out with me and then they begin to say, but you're no different. You're just as depressed, just as miserable, just as frustrated. Your marriage is just as broken as mine. Your money's no better than mine. Your habits are no better than mine. Your thinking is no better than mine. The history on your Google searches are no better than mine. You're just as addicted to porn. You're just as frustrated. And so the reality is then, then what do we need to convince people that Jesus is real? More rules, more churches, more preachers. And so we, we add churches into cities and we, we add preachers into pulpits and we think, well, with all the preachers and all the churches, we should be flipping America upside down. But America's not being flipped back upside down. We're still, we're still on the underworld. And if you look, we're getting seemingly darker and darker uh, by, by the minute. Uh, you, you watch TV and your mind is this, how did we go this far? Well, the reason we went this far is we ended up with a lot of people who confessed Christ, but their life did not bear the fruit of his resurrection. There was nothing about our lives that appealed to the world. There was nothing about the life of a Christian that said, I want what you have. I need what you have. There was nothing by hanging out with another Christian that made me jealous of the way they lived, jealous of how their marriage was. We just kind of got melded in. Like John said, you could tell no difference difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. You could line them all up on the wall. You could follow them for a week and go after following them for a week. Tell me which ones are Christians. Now we might could say, well, they, they read their Bible and they didn't. They went to church and they didn't. Maybe we could say it that way and make it that simplistic. But at the end of the day, we're not measuring rules. We're measuring life change. Because the person may come to church and they may read their Bible, but if you really assess their life, is their life any better than anyone else who didn't do that? Because if we really are honest, there's, there's those that don't believe in God that would fight that fight. They would say, just because you go to church, just because you give money and read your Bible makes you know better than me. My marriage is just as good as yours. My money is better than yours. I'm more educated than you. I live a better life than you. And this becomes what Jesus is introducing us to, this flipping of the script. And oh, what a battle it is. What a battle it is to move us into what is this subjective work of the Holy Spirit? It brings me to this question. And here is the question. What about my nature, Mark Evans, your nature? What about my nature should stand as a witness to resurrection life. 
That's the objective move of the Holy Spirit, not the subjective move. What about my life? Well, you fell out on the floor. You rolled around like a tadpole out of water. You ran through the sanctuary. You do your flags and you blow your shofars. Those are the subjective things that we may call the Holy Spirit. You spoke in tongues. You read your Bible. But the objective thing, meaning for all of us in the room, no matter if you're Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, Pentecostal, the moment you say, I believe in Jesus, then the objective work of the Holy Spirit, as we said in the beginning, is to move everybody toward a point, is to move everybody toward a truth. What is the truth? The truth is not more rules. The truth is not towing the line. He is moving us to the truth that an unbeliever should be able to look at my life and by objectifying my life, be able to say, I may have never met God, I may not believe in Jesus Christ, but I look at your life and your life bears the witness that there must be something, a real power that is working because I knew the old you and this person is distinctly different. Now that is the born again experience. It should be what happens to all of us, but perhaps the reason it doesn't, perhaps the reason that it would be very hard to say, just line everybody up in this room tonight and put you against the wall and say, let's go down the line, one, two, three, four, five, all the way down to what, the 80 people here, down to the line. And let's say at the end of it, okay, out of the 80 people, how many's lives have an objective nature that the resurrected power of God is working in their life? And you may say, well, y'all are just as sick, just as broken. You've had just as many problems. And I say, oh, so it's the lack of problems that prove Jesus. It's the lack of a trial that proves Jesus. It's the lack of suffering that proves Jesus is real. Because we, we might could sell that to American Christians, but it would be very hard to sell the lack of suffering to a Christian who has come out of the Islam and is being threatened to be murdered if they don't reject Jesus Christ. So the, what, what, the lack of suffering means Jesus is alive? The lack of trials, what, money in the bank so you've got more money? You, you prove that if I could get my bank account up, I, I, I could prove that God is real. No, there's, a, there's plenty of people rich that don't even care about God. There's a lot of smart people, a lot of educated people that don't even give God the credit. So what is it that is the objectified work of the Spirit in all of us? Here it is, and I hope it blesses you. We have to turn in our Bibles to the writings of Paul and the book of Romans. And the book of Romans, as he's writing it, it is an interesting statement that he makes in Romans chapter 14. For the kingdom of God, Romans 14 verse 17. For the kingdom of God, and now what he's about to write is just simple. He doesn't even leave room to guess. If he gives you a test and you flunk it, it would just be your fault that you didn't read the manuscript, right? Listen to it. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing God and receives human approval. He sums it up for us. He sums up that, that the objective work of the Spirit, past your denominational preferences, past whether you fall in the floor or you don't fall, 
past whether or not you run or don't run or shout in the Holy Spirit or blow shofars or all our subjective things we call the power of God. Paul objectifies it and brings it down to three things that are supposed to be in the nature of every human being that is a believer that confesses Jesus Christ. And the words that he gives us are in the three I've highlighted in blue. It's righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy. Those three commonalities, standards, non-negotiables, I would call them, are to be so evident in all of our lives that no one could dare say that there's not a bigger power working in you. There's not a bigger power working in you. Here's the thought. Out of relationship flows power and authority. And out of rituals flows religion. Out of relationship flows power and authority. And out of rituals flows religion. How would we know this? Well, we would know this over an amount of time because we go back again to the Garden of Eden. I won't belabor that point. But in the Garden of Eden, we started with relationship. The wisdom, humans in relationship with God's wisdom And out of that came take dominion and rule the earth. But they broke it. And so when they broke it, what happens? Well, you get rituals and rules. And what happens with rituals and rules? Zero power and a lot of religion flows out of it. And even when they kept the rituals and rules, if they broke fellowship with God, they still lost his approval and his power. So what God is going after is if you want relationship, if you want relationship, I want you to come to a place to know what flows out of my power. Let's go look at it again. Here it is. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's at this time I've underlined this next phrase. For anyone, now here's how simple it is. Let's not complicate the gospel. For anyone who serves, come on, say it, who serves Christ in this way. Like this is the way to serve Jesus. The way to serve Jesus is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And when you serve him this way, you become pleasing to God. And when you serve him this way, humans approve that Jesus must be real. You get human approval when you live this way. It it, it is an undeniable, your life becomes the reality of Christ's resurrection. Why? Not because you can quote a thousand scriptures, not because you're so anointed in the pulpit or gifted, but because in the middle of a broken, dying, dark world ruled by the other force of power, you live a life of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Let's look at the first word, righteousness. Here's what it means. It means the state of being as one ought to be. Righteousness. It's the condition that is acceptable to God. It's the state of being as one ought to be. Come on, tell me that's not a battle today. You know, we're we're born into this world. Maybe you got a big forehead. Mine's like an eight head. It's so big. I got a crooked eye that sees double. I... I remember when I first started preaching, I wanted to be like Jimmy Swaggart. I had people that I admired and looked up to. I tried to be like my mother. I tried to be like my dad. 
And because it was hard for me to go, how could God choose somebody like me? I can't talk that way. I can't, I can't preach like they preach. I, I sound redneck and uneducated when I talk. I don't like the way I sound on tape. I, you had to go way back, right? Tape. I don't like the way I sound on tape. I don't like the way I look on video. I, I have a pudgy belly. I guess I could do something about it, but, but, but. And God said, Mark, come back to righteousness. Righteousness is a state of being. I'm good with you, Mark. I'm good with how I created you. I'm good with, with, with your personality. I'm good to use you just like you are because I was in torment when I started. I was in torment trying to be like everybody else. I was in torment of trying to say, how did they get so anointed? I was in torment going, man, if I could only be like them, if I could only preach like that. And yet I watch young men today coming up through ministry and you watch them on a video and you go, yeah, they're just emulating this person. They're just emulating that famous person. Well, there's, there's exactly the mannerisms are identical. Nothing wrong with that. I guess it's good to have somebody you emulate. It's good to have somebody you look up to that inspires you. But at the end of the day, you have to come to God is good with who you are. And God chose to use you in all of your weirdness and all of your strangeness and all of the things and all of your quirks and isms and schisms. God says, I choose you. I want to use you and I'm going to give you my ability. Why Mark? Because it's not about you anyway. It's about my ability. I'm not worried about your personality. Just stay in with me and watch what I'll do with you. And so here I sit at 57, I started preaching my first sermon when I was about 17, so over 40 years ago. Gosh, I go back and listen to cassette tapes, remember? Thank God we can't, we have no way to listen to those anymore. <laughs> and even today at 57, it would be very easy to go, man, I, I just wish, I wish, I wish I wouldn't, I wish I, I wish I was smarter, I wish I knew more, I... But at the end of the day, I have to go, it's about his ability. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much I could try to wow somebody or impress somebody. I have to know it's his ability, and it is how it ought to be. I had to come to a place to go, my style of preaching is I tell stories, I connect people to Jesus, I don't really use notes, I just let it flow out of my heart. I, 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 that's just my, you know, and, and I know sometimes my jokes are dorky and sometimes they're weird and, and at the end of the day I go, you know what, if you don't like the way it is, there's a hundred other preachers out there, find somebody that you can get behind and run with them and run strong with them, but whoever you follow, make sure that they understand, well, this is how it ought to be. God chose me. God picked me. I'm in his kingdom. He's working a good work in me. Because of that, I'm acceptable to God. That's righteousness. So what does it mean when I say that? It means that I have to learn to serve from who I am. This is who I am. I can't be a Stephen Furtick. I can't be a Jordan Peterson. I I listen to Jordan Peterson and I just, uh, my, my mind just goes, gosh, he's such a brilliant person. But at the end of the day, he's who he is and I'm who I am. And I think one of the biggest problems in churches today, the reason why many people never really press in to do something as incredible is they never learn to serve from who they really are. They're always making apologies. They're always embarrassed. They're always putting themselves down. Well, I'm not anointed enough. I'm not gifted enough. I just don't feel anointed. Look, you don't even have to feel anointed. 
Just get busy serving God. Just get busy to say, I'm his kid. Listen to what Jesus will say. I love it. It's in John chapter 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate to help you, and he'll be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world can't receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him, and he will be in you. I will. Oh, man, I love this next verse. Verse, tw- verse 18 of, first, of John 14. I will not leave you as orphans. John 14, 18 but I will come to you. This has every much to do with the righteousness of Jesus Christ because when I say the kingdom of God is not eat or drink, but righteousness, it literally means that I need to learn to serve from who I am. I'm a new creation in Christ. It's not about my ability. It's about his ability. My personality is his gift, and so my personality submits to his spirit, and he moves me into his will, and he air every single day. He moves me to come in to be pleasing to him. And in learning to serve from that, I also come to this place of, yeah, I'm, it's the righteousness of Jesus, so I'm not an orphan. Come on, I'm not an orphan. I'm not left here alone, and yet you know how many people claim to be born again and live like orphans? Just look at their prayer life. Everything is poor, pitiful me. Nothing goes my way. Nothing ever happens to me. Well, well nothing about this would inspire anyone to follow Christ. A whining, complaining, poor, pitiful me. I hate who I am. I don't like the way I am. My person, you know, I don't like my personality. I don't like my hair. I don't like the way I am. Nobody wants to follow that. Oh, but when you begin to just stand up and go, I know who I am in Christ. I've met him. He took my old personality, my South Alabama, you know, uh, lingo. He took my quirks and isms and he baptized me with his help and his power. And now I can just boldly stand up and go, let me introduce you to him. And let me tell you who he is because I know who I am in him. And I'm not an orphan and he never leaves me alone. And I'm not worried about what's coming. That is the objective work of the Holy Spirit in all of us. The next word that comes is the word peace. He says the kingdom of God is righteousness and then this word peace, it means this, it's a state of national tranquility and exemption from havoc of war. It's a harmony between individuals and I love this last one. It's the tranquil state of the soul. Jesus introduces us to the Holy Spirit. He says you're going to need this. You're going to have to be baptized in this. And the reason you're going to be baptized in this is you're going to have to know my righteousness. You're going to have to know who you are in me. You're going to have to live without making excuses. You're going to have to learn to live that it's your ability and and, and not your ability, but my ability. You're going to have to live knowing that I chose you and I'm good with who you are and you're not an orphan. I chose you as a father. I'm going to empower you is what the word orphan means. The word orphan means that you're not fatherless. The word orphan means you're not bereft of a parent. And then Jesus says, oh, and also this, my kingdom of the Holy Spirit is peace. You're going to have a tranquility of soul. Oh, man, how many Christians, you personally, do you know that exemplify a tranquil soul? Dear Lord, I just read a report the other day. It wasn't a Christian. It was just a research. 
and that this is 2023, one of the most stressed out, depressed, anxious, suicidal generations that have ever lived. I made this comment Sunday. How in God's name can we live in 2023 and be so depressed, suicidal, anxious, tormented, frustrated, burned out, you know, how, when we, you know, I made the joke when you got air conditioned in Chick-fil-A, right? I mean, you know, come on. But I do know that we struggle with genetic issues. I do know that we struggle with hurts and past things that have been done to us and, and people that have abused us and life has hurt us. And so the mind begins to come up with all kinds of ways of I feel broken, I feel lost, I feel depressed, I feel hopeless. How could God love me? I'll never come out of this, right? That word rescue. I'm never going to come out. Yes, I'm born again, but my mind is still in the darkness. My mind is still in the other kingdom. The other kingdom yells at me, you're dirty. You'll never be different. You'll never get free of this. And so the depression sets in. And the suicidal thoughts set in. I can't find the freedom. And Jesus says, wait, 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 wait. My kingdom is righteousness. Know who you are in me. Yes, all that may have been done to you. Yes, you may have a thousand scars from your past. You may have a lot of hurts, but do you know who you are in me? Do you know that I chose you even as broken as you are? Do you know I hold nothing against you? I don't look at you as dirty. I don't look at you as washed up. That's righteousness. And in that righteousness, I want to offer you a tranquility of soul. Oh man, that alone is invaluable. Most people never find tranquility of soul. They attempt it through addictions. They attempt it through alcohol. They attempt it through, uh, you know, opioids and, and prescription meds and binging Netflix and all the ways that we try to find a tranquil soul. Let me just go for a walk. Let me go on a run, which are great, but you can't walk forever. You can't run forever. You can't stay in the gym forever. You can't binge watch Netflix forever. Ultimately, you have to turn it off and pay the bill. Ultimately, you have to go home and do the laundry. A tranquil soul. Be honest with yourself right now. Are you, do you have that? Do I have that? I wrote a book called Fireflies on the Bedpost, and it's this one battle that went on in my life for over 20 years of living in fear. Oh, I was born again. I believed in Jesus. I could quote the scriptures. I went to altars and was prayed for. I cried a lot. I asked God to help me a lot. I, but I didn't have tranquility of soul. I was always scared I would die. Scared Robin would die. Scared one of our kids would die. Scared I would get sick. Scared I would have a disease. I had the mentality of an orphan. I, I didn't have the mentality that God would watch over me and keep me and, and be with me always and that greater is he that was in me. I knew the scripture, but I didn't have the tranquility of soul. I knew the verses to quote, but my soul was not in tranquility. I, I was always seeking it, some, uh, some outer feeling. It, it was something outside of me that I looked for. It was not an inward tranquility, an inward rest. Are you there tonight? Are you at that place that if somebody hung out with you for a week and they lived in your home, would they leave your home after a week and go, man, I don't know how they did it. I mean, the world is a wreck. Gas is up. Food is up. I mean, they're raising kids and they're grandbabies. They're married. And, and yet I hung out with them for a week. I'll tell you one thing, man. They are, they are some peaceful people. And nothing bothers them. Nothing shakes them. I often joke about my dad. My dad is probably one of the uh, person I've ever met that's, that's really truthfully has a tranquil soul. 
You could blame it on his personality. Well, his personality's that way. Well, he's just this, and I didn't get that personality. And I say, okay, well, I, yeah, that's probably true if you're talking psychology, but Jesus is not talking psychology. He's talking kingdom. And everybody in the room can have a tranquil soul. He says this, but the advocate in, in John 14, he goes on to say, Jesus about the Holy Spirit, the advocate, verse 26. John 14, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and he will remind you of everything I've ever told you. And then he says this, my peace, I love this, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you, but I don't give it to you as the world gives. There's that wisdom, there's that separation, there's that dividing line. I don't give it as the world gives, so don't let your heart, and then, oh man, these words, don't let your heart be troubled and don't let your heart be afraid. Don't let your heart be troubled and don't be afraid. That is such a powerful thought of how many people when it says, don't let your hearts be troubled, tormented, frustrated, anxious. Don't let your heart be troubled and don't be afraid. Don't be timid, live boldly. Don't be scared. Hey, the object lesson for this word peace was given to us. I wrote this down. How do you know you're really serving the kingdom that way? Well, righteousness, I know who I am. And then the second word peace, I have a tranquil soul and I'm not afraid. You want to know how uh, crazy it is? Go back to 2020 and ask how many Christians do you know during the pandemic that hit the world that lived a tranquil soul, non-afraid, peaceful life? And I bet the statistics would be off the chart of how many confessing Christians lived in utter torment, utter fear. To this day, I've got a friend in ministry that pastors, and he says many of his people still have not come back to church. Now, maybe that's just they got out of the habit. Maybe they never truly were in anyway. Maybe it was just fake. Maybe it was just uh, checking a religious box. It wasn't really something that was genuine. But nevertheless, no matter what it is, we couldn't do the research on it. I will say this, many people who claimed Jesus Christ and were believers don't live with tranquility of soul and they don't live not afraid. We're afraid of the economy. What's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen with the economy? Where do you think the world is headed? And I'm like, dude, I don't know, but I'm not sweating it. What do you think is going to happen to the money? What do you think we're going to do digital? You think Jesus is about to return? What do you think's happened in the Middle East? Oh man, I wish I could know everything there is to know about that, but I'm not really worried about it. Well, what if the Democrats get reelected again? Or what if Trump goes to prison? Or what if, what if we don't get a Republican in? Or what if we get a Democrat in? Or I want to fight for what I believe in. I don't know, but I'm not worried about it. I'm not going to lay awake at night sweating the ways of the world. Well, what about this knot on my shoulder? What about this bump? What about this lump? What about, what about all the diseases? Have you heard there's a new disease coming out of Canada? It rots the flesh. It's like some fleshy thing. You'll turn into a zombie. Yeah, I heard about that, but I don't know. But I'm not worried about it. Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. And if I do die, I keep living. Come on, somebody. If I do die, I just keep on living because I know who I am. That's righteousness, peace. But he gives us a third word, joy. What does the word joy mean? It means to, to receive joy from within. It's an occasion, a calm delight, and a gladness. When he says, you, my kingdom is joy, he doesn't, he doesn't assume that anything from the external world will answer true contentment of soul. 
Nothing from the external world will make you calm. And I would, I would, I would beg to differ. I would go, oh yes, there, there's a lot of stuff that would make me calm. A new guitar would make me calm. Uh, a, a new a bottle of wine that would be really strong would make me calm. Hey, how about coffee in the morning definitely makes me calm, although I do shake a little bit when I drink it because it's so strong. But oh man. But Jesus lends the word that I'm not talking about something external. My kingdom joy is an internalized thing. It's an internalized calm, an internalized gladness. And it makes me wonder how many of God's people confessing resurrection have a true inward calmness. They're content inwardly. They're not needing another car. They're not needing another raise. They're not looking for another job, another marriage, another this or another that. They're not waiting on the day they can retire to finally enjoy life or... Nope. They've learned to embrace every moment they're breathing as a delight. But you don't know how hard my life is. You don't know how difficult it's been right now. I know. I've been in some of those places. I've been in places where it's difficult and you just wish it would pass. You just wish the season would be over. You can't take it anymore. You've prayed the same prayer over and over and over and no results. You've prayed the same thing and nothing changes. And you get tired and you get weary and you just feel like throwing in the towel. But Jesus says, wait a minute. You're starting to subjectify it, Mark. You're starting to base it on your feelings, Mark. You're starting to base it on your circumstances, Mark. Back up and remember what I told you. My kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, Mark. Don't subjectify it and base it off of your feelings or your circumstances or whether you've had a great day or a pitiful day or whether you're healthy right now or you're or I'm a little under the weather right now. Mark, base it off of righteousness, know who you are in me. Come on, base it off of peace, have a tranquility of soul and understand this mark, base it off of something within you. Greater is he that's within you. Base it off that mark that I'm working something and if I'm working a good work, it is going to turn out. So why don't you just wake up every day, Mark, and be glad. Why don't you just wake up, Mark, with a calm delight. Come on, judge yourself on that one. Do you wake up every day glad? Ready to face another day? Or are you bemoaning, oh, I just can't wait for the weekend. And I know I'm that way at times. I can't wait. Thursday's my weekend. I can't wait for Thursday. Do you know what? On Thursday, I don't have to study for anything. I don't have to put together a lesson plan. I don't have to get my mind wrapped around some, uh, you know, system of what I'm going to say the next time I stand up. It is a free and I long for Thursdays, but I've had to learn how to wake up on a Sunday, a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Friday, a Saturday and rejoice that I'm alive and be glad. I go to fill up the truck. Oh, it's a little high, but I know I'm going to have a calm delight and be glad. I'm going to have an inward tranquility of soul because I'm not going to be afraid and fearful of what could happen. Do you know you can waste your entire life fearing what could happen? And a lot of people never go anywhere with God because they're, they can't get past what did happen. And then they're afraid of what could happen. And righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost is about right now. Do you understand what Jesus was doing is he was pulling us out of the past and back from the future into the now. Now is the day of salvation. Now faith is. Why could he say now? Because the now is a relationship. It is a 24-7 relationship with him. And when you're talking with him in pr through prayer and when you're communing with him through the word and when you stop and you rejoice in communion by his death, burial, and resurrection and 
in his life for you, then you find this righteousness, this peace, and this joy in the Holy Ghost. When I have joy, I have a calm delight. And then he goes on to say this. We'll conclude here. John chapter 15. I'm the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear a lot of fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Come on, how good that is. I wrote this down about joy. I need to learn to serve from a calm delight. And I need to know that I'm never lacking a thing. Never lacking a thing. Never lacking a thing. For without me, you can do nothing. Well, the antithesis would be so. With him, Paul will write it, I can do all things, for I lack nothing. Nothing he would ever ask you to do will you lack in because he's doing something. He'll say this in Matthew 19. I love it just to show you that you would never lack. Listen to what he says. And anyone who has ever left house or home, Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. If you've left a house, a brother, a sister, father, a mother, wife, or children, or any fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Here's the concluding thought. Kingdom government, kingdom government is God's sovereignty ruling my life via my relationship with the Holy Spirit. Not rules, relationship. And that results in a state of being totally contrary to the world. The reason Jesus flips the script from rules to relationship, from your ability to keep the rules to his ability to empower you, from your inability to please him to his ability to live in you and be pleasing to himself, is because he gives you the Holy Spirit. And the reason he did that is to show the world that the contrary nature within you, as opposed to the world watching you, is proof of his resurrection. You carry the resurrection proof of Jesus Christ when you display righteousness, peace, and joy via the Holy Spirit. And the concluding thought is kingdom government is God's sovereignty that rules my life via a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And here's the conclusion that results in a state of being that is totally contrary to the world. Come on, let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this lesson. Thank you that you teach us how to be God exactly who you've called us to be. Thank you that we're righteous in you. We have a tranquility in you and a calm delight in you. And may that righteousness, peace, and joy be the reflection of your resurrection so that the naysayers and those that may snub their nose at you will find life as we witness to your resurrection. We give you thanks for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Come on, I love you. Have a